much fun that is. But tonight we're over in 2 Kings chapter 13. And we're looking at two of the kings of Israel. The names are real fun again. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Of course, again, that's the sin that was a false worship of God. Not just a corrupted worship, but a false worship of God, which the two golden calves were uh, put in place. We had priests of every tribe and so forth. And uh, they continued on that false worship and then not returned to the worship of Jehovah. But he reigned 17 years despite that. Uh, There are some good signs about this guy, but he still is classified as having an evil reign. Now, it does not say that he followed in the sins of Ahab. He followed in the sins of Jeroboam. Remember, Jehu came through... And his purpose was to wipe out the sins of Ahab, which was the Baal. I'm not quite sure. He doesn't specifically mention the Asherahs, and there does seem to be some remnants of it in this chapter. But at least the Baal worship was wiped out, and that does not follow back. But it does not say that he followed after the sins of Ahab, but that he followed after the sins of Jeroboam. So it seems like Jehu did a pretty decent job of getting rid of the sins of Ahab. At least for a while they are. They do seem to stay away. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. Now, um, Hazael, Syria, they were anoint- he was anointed to go after the house of Ahab, but he was not really anointed to go after Israel. But since Israel is still rebellious, God has allowed them to be a hand of judgment. So they've been following after the sins of Jeroboam for quite a long time and then even got into some other ones. But it now says that now the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. This is one of those cases where you'll see that verse of Scripture where uh, the sins of the fathers are visited to the third and fourth generation. That is not a verse of judgment that God will bring judgment, but it's a verse of grace that God will withhold it to even the third and fourth generation. And here we see that he withheld it even longer than that. He withheld judgment for quite a while. Now, there were some parts of judgment that were coming in, but uh, people who try and use that as a, as a judgment verse, uh, correct them if you can. It is not. It is a grace verse that God is withholding the sin that should come upon them until later. And people have twisted that verse to all kinds of stuff, that the thin, things your father did or grandfather did, that they're going to come back and hit you. No, not if you're not doing them. If you continue in the sins of the fathers, eventually the judgment is going to come in. But God will withhold it as long as he can, trying to see if people will repent. And if they don't, then he will bring the judgment upon them. Verse 4, So Jehoaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel because of the king of Syria oppressed them. So he does know about God, and he does plead with the Lord. And the Lord listened to him. That just shows you how much God wants to wants to show up on our on our behalf. Called him an evil king, but still said that God was, would listen to him. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. 
that wooden image seems to be a remnant of the worship of Asherah. For he left of the army of Jehoaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. That's not really a lot to do, do much with. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoaz, all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, reigned in his place. Now, that particular book, the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, is not the Chronicles that we have. Because if you go to the Chronicles that we have, there is very little about these two kings. There is a little bit about the next one, and we're not actually going to cover that one. This one, we'll, we'll look at it more for the kings of Judah. But pretty much from this point on in the area of Chronicles, it's dealing with the kings of Judah. It does deal with some kings of Israel in Chronicles before this time frame. But after this time frame, you see very little from the kings of Israel, and you pretty much go from a king of Judah to another king of Judah to another king of Judah to another king of Judah. Not too much is, uh, is made of them. You will hear them as, as they interact with Judah and so forth, but we don't really spend a whole lot of time on the kings of, of Israel from this point on in Chronicles. Before they had Ahab got mentioned a few times in there and some others, but uh, from this point forward, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on there. So then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. So Jehoaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, reigned in his place. So we already know there is another Joash, and it just adds to the confusion at this time of, uh, of all this. But it does mention that there was a, de a deliverer. And then after the deliverer, that everything kind of restored to normal and that the people still didn't repent. But it makes no mention of who the deliverer is. Yeah, well, if you want to know who the deliverer is, the deliverer is this son who took, takes over. There was no deliverance during his reign. The deliverance comes afterwards. It comes in the form of his son. And so it was kind of jumping ahead on you on that one. Because this is uh, the guy who comes in here is the deliverer and Elisha makes a prophecy over him in regards to that. So the Lord gave Israel a deliverer who was Jehoash or Joash, however you want to put his name in there. But even after God delivered them, and I'm sure they're all weeping about the terrible treatment they're getting from Syria and, and all that, and God, you need to come help us. And even after God comes help us, they still go and worship the golden calf and whatever other things they were doing. They still did evil in the sight of the Lord. They didn't depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel sin. So those gods would not deliver them when they needed help. Jehovah would, but they still want to go back to worshiping him. It's just a, it's amazing what people do. So verse uh, 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Joash, Jehoaz, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. Now the years are off here, and I looked up all sorts of stuff to see what historians might be able to pull this out. No one has a, even mentioned it. But if you go back in the 23rd year, the previous king took over. In the 20, uh, 23rd year of Joash, king of Judah, Je Jehoaz became king. He reigned 17 years. 23 plus 17 is 40. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, that's three years shy. Sometimes it can be a year shy, and you're just, you know, because of the way the months fall, and you can understand. I don't know where the three years went to. So I looked up all kinds of stuff, and no one even addressed it. So usually you look for historians, they tell you some things that happened, and there's nothing that I could find on, on it. Not saying that there isn't anything, I'm just saying I didn't find it. So if you want to do some looking up on that, there's a, there's a gap there 
it should have been in the 40th year or else it should have been in the 20th year that he took over. But anyway, that's, um, that's what's going on with that one. So Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, who comes up with these names? You know what I mean? Became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. So Jehoash is also known as Joash. And he will be called Joash a lot in this story. But his name is Jehoash. So like we said before, it's kind of a nickname. One is a nickname of the other. I'm sure the shortened version is a nickname of the longer version. But it's the exact same thing as the one in the south. So once again, you have the king in the south, king in the north, and they have the same name. So look at it this way. In the servant 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Joash, king of Israel, took over. <laughs> and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the, it's not that Israel and Judah like each other so much, because actually they at war a few times. So I don't know why they keep naming each other after for this sort of thing, but um, this Joash was named after the other Joash was already named and um, possibly even in power. Don't, don't know exactly on that one. But Jehoash means God has bestowed or donated. So that's what the name means. Of course, anytime you see Je, uh, Je in there, somehow is going to be Jehovah's is something in there. But these kings who keep worshiping the Golden calves keep naming their kids after something with Jehovah. So they still see themselves as worshiping Jehovah, but they're doing it wrong. They're doing it their own way, and God sees it as evil. Now, you bring that over to today. People who want to worship God the way they want to worship God, it's not right. You worship God the way God said to be worshiped. And that's uh, pretty much it. <clears throat> now, beyond that, you, uh, there's a lot of freedom in how you worship God. God never says, thou shalt have a 30-minute worship service. <laughs> if some churches have five minutes of worship and other ones have 45 minutes, they're all in compliance with the Word of God. We can't, uh, can't do anything about, about that. The, the Word of God does not say, thou shalt teach the Word of God for one hour. It doesn't, uh, if, if places do 20 minutes, fine. That's still within the framework of the Word of God. What we know is that when we come together for, uh, to worship God, there needs to be worship. There needs to be ministry. There needs to be teaching, some kind of combination of things. That's what we see in the Word of God. But culture has a lot to do with it. And <clears throat> there's nothing that says that you have to start the service with worship. If other churches want to start it with something else, that's, that's okay. But what we do know is how we worship God. There is one church in this particular area around here that uh, they do worship God, but they also worship other gods. And um, a long time ago, I think I mentioned it to you, my wife was calling around different churches trying to get all of them to, to get together to do something and talk to this church and found out that um, in the same service they may worship this God, this God, and this God. Well, thank you very much. And we crossed them off the list and <laughs> we, we don't need to be having that sort of stuff going on. But uh, you need to honor the Word. And there's a lot of churches who don't honor the Word and they will bring things into the church that are not supposed to be into the church. They will honor things that God does not honor. They will uh, not call sin some things that God calls sin. Those folks have a problem. If God says, don't do it, we don't do it. We were, um, you know, some of the recovery time we were spending on Saturday, 
we were looking around for different movies, and uh, I didn't know what this movie was at first, but it, it came. I came in from outside, and we were, we were watching it. What well, turned out to be the uh, Moses movie with um, the Batman guy, Christian. Yeah, he was there. And so I was. I sat down and I, I watched about the first five minutes, and they already got three things wrong from the word. And so I just you know that I don't need to be watching it. <laughs> I don't think they watched it much longer than that either. I think they pretty much turned it off. They were kind of disgusted. Why can't you get the stuff right that's in the Word? All right, if you want to add the other stuff in, that's fine. You know, add some stuff in there. You know, make the story a little bit longer. That's okay. But get the stuff in the Word right. I don't know how many other things they got wrong because after the first three things, I think I got up and just, I guess, I was tired from wrestling with the snowblower and everything else. So, um, that was uh, that was it. But anyway, what the Word does tell us to do, we need to do it. What the Word tells us to honor, we honor it. If there's a church that doesn't honor the things that God says to honor, doesn't do the things that God says to do, that's where we have a problem. When Paul wrote to Galatians, he didn't say that they pursued a, uh, a different gospel that was along the same lines. He said you pursued a gospel that's completely different, not even in the same family. And yet they're worshiping God. Theirs was over grace and works. And so we have to, have to be careful some of the things. The things that the Word of God says we honor, the things that the Word of God says that are wrong, they are always wrong, no matter what year it is. It doesn't, we don't get modernized. Well, you know, we need to, to look at the gays and the homosexuals, and, and well, that's, that's okay. It's, we can't be throwing ourselves all No, if it was wrong before, it's wrong now doesn't mean we hate the people that, that do it. We try and love on them and pull them into the kingdom. But uh, that's what the Word of God says. But anyway, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, reigned for 16 years. Now, verse 12 is interesting. I'm sorry, we'll, we'll just, a, just a little bit here. We pretty much have um, 10 and 11. We introduce Joash, and in 12 and 13, we bury him. <laughs> now, the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and his might with which he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now, that one is recorded in the book of Chronicles that we have. But it's really recorded as the life of Amaziah. So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on the throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Verse 14. Elisha, almost forgot about him, didn't we? He's still around. Elisha had become sick with the illness in which he would die. It's estimated that Elisha ministered for, um, I don't know how much of an estimate it is. I saw the, the year put down, 66 years that he was ministering. 66 years that he was ministering as a prophet, which would put him somewhere around 85 to 90 years old by the time he died. And it says he became sick with an illness with which he would die. Now, I saw some, a couple of people that tried to say, well, he was sick with old age. The Bible never called old age a sickness. Not one time did anybody die of being old age and God say they died of a sickness. Never happened. So um, he died sick. And we wonder about that. You know, well, Elisha died sick. and Well, Elijah was the type of the ministry that would come before Christ. Elisha is the type of the ministry of Christ. And as Christ died with our sickness and disease, Elisha may very well have died as a symbolic part here with, with burying the sickness and disease. Not because he missed it. I don't see any indication 
that would tell us that Elisha missed it or did something that would cause him to be sick because here's his last words that we have and he's once again prophesying. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. whole lot in that one little verse right there. Joash, the king, comes down because Elisha is sick. He has concern that Elisha, the prophet, who's been ministering in the northern tribes of Israel for 66 years, that he is dying. And he comes, that the king comes down to the prophet. That is saying something. There's a lot of kings who would say, die. <laughs> Ahab, what would he have said? There's a, there's a lot of them that would have been happy that this was, was going on. But Joash actually comes down here and he weeps. He is sad to see that he's dying. And then he says this. Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Where did we ever hear that phrase before? Elisha said it as Elijah was caught up. Which would tell us that Joash knows the stories of Elisha. So either somebody sat and told him the stories of Elisha, or he's had an audience with Elisha before, and Elisha told him the stories. If Elisha had an audience with him, and Elisha told him the stories, that would tell us that Joash was not cold to the things of God. That he had a heart somewhat towards God, at least, but he still had this problem that the nation was in because they hadn't done anything to get rid of this national sin we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. or last, I guess it was last week. But he says this to him. He's saying, I, I know what you said to Elisha when he goes, and I know you're leaving now, and I'm going to say the same thing about you. Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. It's a neat thing to, to, uh, to open up and say. I know your stories you told me. I remember the stories that you told me. When you leave, I'm going to remember these stories that you told me and the things that God did through you. At least that's what I sh- sure hear about this. It tells you something about Joash. But he's sad that he's going. Putting your outline there, this would mean that Joash is familiar with Elisha's ministry. He knows some things are going on. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Elisha does not hand him bows and arrows. He tells him to take some bows and arrows, which means they are not on Joash's person. He either brought some bows and arrows with him, or someone in the room has them, or somewhere in the room are some bows, a bow and some arrows. Whatever it is, he knows where they are. He sees where they are. He goes and gets them. He grabs whatever arrows he wants to. He grabs whatever bow he wants to. But it's all in his hand. It's not handed to him. He is not given so many arrows. He's just told to get some. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. So he has his hands on the bow. And Elisha comes over and puts his hands on on the king's hand. And he said, Open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. <clears throat> now he opens the east window. If you look on a map, you will see that where they are and where they're talking about is not east. It is northeast. 
So it may mean that they did not have a window on the northeast. Now, if I were to tell you, go open the east window, how many of you could find it? <laughs> but these folks, they know exactly where it is. If you ever want to find the east window, just think of it. Where does the sun come up? Because it comes up in the east. So you go in the direction where the, the, that you can see the window that you can see the sun in the morning. That's your east window. But they actually needed a northeast window, but they don't have one. So he gets the east window, which is probably the closest that he could get to it. So if you look on the map and trying to figure all that out, that's, you, you can't make a northeast window if you have an east, north, south, and west window. It's just, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So he says to open the window, and he opens it, and he tells them to, to shoot the arrow. And so he shoots the arrow out the window and out towards the east. So he's saying, he's telling them right now, this is all type. The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike Syrian, the, the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. So he's shooting. This is an aggressive move to shoot. You know, if you think of any battles that have gone on, there's always the first shot. Uh, Revolutionary War, there was that first shot. No one knows who shot it. We're not even sure what side it was shot from. But we know there was a first shot because then a second, a third, and many, many others after that. But most wars had a first shot. And this is basically the first shot. He's saying, shoot this thing. It's, it's in the act of aggression. We are declaring war, even though Syria has no idea what's going on. So take a bow and some arrows. He opens the east window and he shoots out there. And so he knows this is all about Syria. Now, again, this is a king that's been described by the Bible as evil. But God's going to use him because his father prayed, talked to God, and God said, I'm going to send you a deliverer. Here he is. This is the deliverer. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. Now, I've always been under the impression that he's taking the arrows in his hand and banging them against the floor. That is not the only explanation of this. Because in the same way that he shot the other arrow, he could have shot this one into the ground. And he could have shot one. He could have shot two. And he could have shot three and then stopped. Well, with a bow and arrow, you shoot things. You don't usually attack them like a, a knife or a sword or something like that. So it's very possible that that's what it was, that he was shooting once, shooting twice, shooting three times, and then stopped. However he did it, whether he struck the ground, holding them in his hand, or if he, uh, you know, that mark up Elisha's floor. But if he's doing the, the arrows, he may have either shot it from the window or he may have gone outside and shot from there, which Elisha could be, be watching him from. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times that you would have struck Syria till you have destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Now you just want, you wonder about this. Is, well, you didn't tell him how many times to strike it. He just said to, to strike it. But he knew this was representative of the battle. And why did you stop at three? And apparently, Elisha felt like he had grounds to expect more. And the king does not offer any defense. He does not say, well, I didn't know. I would have certainly. I'll do it now if you want. <laughs> but now it's too late. That's the, the time to, to do it. You remember what we were talking about with the New Testament. When the command comes, you obey. After, after the, you don't get a, a second chance. Mm 
You don't get, oh, well, you don't want to take up your bed and walk? I'll, I'll tell you what, we'll do it again. You don't get the, the do-over that way. You don't get a do-over here either. But there were going to be three victories. They would not wipe out Syria, but they would uh, certainly push them back. Then Elisha died, and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now, why is that in there? Why does this happen now? I'm not real sure why the tomb of Elisha, of Elisha is someplace where you can... Because he's been dead. He, he didn't just die. He died, and then after that, the raiders came on in. So, you know, it could be dead a month, two months, three months. Uh, however long it was, it's in the spring of the year is when the raiders come in. So some time had passed, and we're talking about the bones. It didn't say body. It said bones. So wouldn't that mean that somehow he had turned into, or bones were at least being exposed, or something is, is going on there. But he was let down. I guess they were figuring on burying him, but when the raiders were coming, well, we can't do that. We don't want to just leave him here. So we'll put him, here's a, here's a tomb. We'll put him down into there. And when they did, he stood up and got on his feet. Well, that's going to bring the name of Elisha up because word travels. Uh, we lowered this guy down and he rose up. He touched the bones of Elisha. Elisha, now all of a sudden the words of Elisha come back. The last words. Remember the things that Elisha said last? So it may just be a way to revive the words that Elisha spoke last so that the people of Israel knows what was said. And Hosea, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regard, regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Hosea, king of Syria, died, then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place, and Jehoash... <coughs> the son of Jehoaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz, his, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. So the man was resurrected by touching the bones of, a, of Elisha, and then this battle goes on. So it seemed like that miracle would bring attention to Elisha and, again, his last words, so that the people would know God called this. God predicted this. This is what God said. And the reason you only have three victories is because the king only shot or struck the ground three times. It wasn't because of God's inability. It was not because of God's uh, lack of desire. God would have destroyed them. That's why Elisha was mad at him. We wanted to wipe them out. Take this enemy of Israel and wipe them out. But they didn't do it. So we do all this here. Look at these two kings. And here's the thing we get from this. Don't let the enemy tell you that God will not show up for you. If he would show up for two kings that both are classified as evil, not leaving the sins of a false worship. And when they cried out to God, he came. And he showed up and he did some things for them. Helped them out. I put this in there. If he listened to Jehoaz and helped Joash, Je Jehoash, how much more will he help you? Amen. Someone who does worship God in the correct way. 
someone who does pursue God. But the enemy is always wanting to come up and tell you, well, you're this or you're that or this is going or you didn't do this or God's not happy here. God's not going to show up for you. If he did it for these guys, he is going to show up for you. Second Chronicles 16, 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Talking about Ahath, uh, Asa when he had made a, uh, 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 pact, contract, treaty instead of trusting God to deliver. He says, and the Lord says, Hey, I'm looking all over for people to show up and show myself strong on. Even showing up for people like Jehoaz. Even people like Jehoash. I'll show up for them if they just showed a little, limit, a little bit of coming to, to me. I'll do it. I'll do it. How much more will he come and show up on your behalf? So whenever the enemy comes and he tries to say, God's done with you. He's fed up. You haven't done this. You haven't done that. You're not doing anything. No. If he's going to help those guys, that the word of God classified as evil, how much more for one the word of God is going to classify as righteous? Because we are the righteousness of God in Christ. How much more is he going to show up for us? Don't let the devil ever tell you, remind you of your sins, remind you of your failures, get you to cast your eyes on things that have gone on in your life and give you reasons why God doesn't want to show up. God is not looking for reasons to not show up. He is looking for reasons to show up. Amen. Whatever reason that you give Him, whatever reason He can find, He is going to show up on your behalf. Amen. <laughs> Glory to God for that. <laughs> Hallelujah. So these two guys are in the Word and they're going to give us that picture that no matter what, God is going to show up. Just remember, these two guys are put in here and for no other reason, this lets you know. God says, I'll show up for you. I will show up for you. I will deliver you. What will you believe for? What will you pursue? What will you go after? Because I will show up for you. Father, we thank you that you do show up on our behalf. We thank you for the glory that you desire to bestow on us. The help that you want to give us. Deliverance over our enemies. Blessings beyond blessings. Father, you are looking for people that you can show up on their behalf. Father, we are those people. No matter how much the enemy wants to remind us of our shortcomings, we won't let him get us mindful of the wrong things. For you're mindful of the righteousness of Christ. And that's what we wear. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.